Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, snowy Wednesday afternoon. Our, our number here is 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Uh, this isn't a news story, but the fact that it's an ongoing story is in and of itself problematic. Uh, something that we should have been able to have dealt with by now, but we haven't. And that is the nationwide shortage uh, of children's pain and fever medication, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, commonly known as children's Tylenol or children's Advil. This nationwide shortage has been going on for months. Now, there are some some factors at play here, to be sure. Uh, Disruption in supply, uh, increases in demand. But I don't know that that explains why this has been such an acute problem for so long and why it seems rather unique to Canada. As our next guest writes in an interesting and provocative piece at The Line, uh, theline.substack.com, recently I had to go to another country to buy children's medicine because Canada has normalized dysfunction and no one notices until there's a crisis. And in a lot of ways, I think that's what this is. Uh, as we deal with COVID, as we deal with colds, as we deal with flu, as we deal with RSV, not to mention uh, other infections uh, that the kids encounter. This is a big problem. I think a lot of parents aren't sure what to do. Going to another country doesn't seem like a realistic option. But maybe that's the, the last resort that a lot of families are facing. Anyway, joining us to talk a bit more about this issue uh, and the piece we referenced, very pleased to welcome in the program, uh, its author, Melanie Paradis, uh, joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Uh, the author of this piece also has mentioned uh, President at Texture Communications. Uh, Melanie, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I think this has, has sparked quite a conversation, maybe in a conversation that was ongoing, but I think, you know, it sort of brought it back to the forefront. Like, yeah, why haven't we been able to deal with this yet? What, what have you made of some of the reaction to this, first of all? Yeah, well, it, as you said, this has been going on for months. It's actually been six months now. This started at the beginning of the summer in, in around June. Um, people really started to pay attention in August when they realized, hey, it's been a while since I've been able to get some children's Tylenol. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, and actually, Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto issued a press release telling um, telling patients that they had to bring their own to the hospital or they'd need a, a prescription in order to get a pharmacist to make some for them at the hospital and that really sparked a bit of a, a bit of a, a frenzy and, and some media coverage at that time but since then virtually nothing has happened um, and actually it, it came up in, in question period today um, with Pierre Polyev, um, Alberta MP Leila Goodrich and I believe Luke Bartol all ask the question, like, what is going on? What does the government have to say about this? And there's just no new information. It's shocking. Right. So we, we I've seen stories about this, and, and I alluded to it in the introduction. You know, and some have pointed to uh, disruptions in supply. These companies, you know, early on in the pandemic, their supply uh, pro- uh, procedures were disrupted. Others have pointed to increased demand or even accusing some parents of hoarding this medication. What's your sense of what's going on here? I mean, I think, uh, of course, it is a little bit of, of everything. And uh, as you said, there's, there are a lot of factors that are compounding this, including a lot of, um, of illness amongst young children right now. RSV is particularly bad across North America. Yeah. But it's, it's just as bad in the United States as it is here. In fact, there right. are hospitals in the U.S., children's hospitals, where they're considering, you know, they're putting up tents or field hospitals to, to help fit all of the kids that are sick in mm-hmm. and that's a problem they like never have in the u.s here i think in canada unfortunately it's a bit more common 
um, but for it to be happening in the U.S., and yet they don't have a supply problem. Like, I was able to go to the United States and, and buy Tylenol no problem and know plenty of people who've done the same. Why is it that it's just a supply chain issue here? Yeah. No one's really well, been able to bit, answer yeah. that, and, and industry right. hasn't really answered the questions in great detail. Tell us about your situation. Why did you end up having to go across the border? Well, um, my so my, I grew up in a border town, and my parents live in actually Niagara Falls, Ontario, and we were there for, for a weekend two weeks ago. And my son woke up in the night. He's 16 months old, um, and he had a cough and was really, really miserable and, and sick. And we said, you know what? We don't have any liquid Tylenol with us, and we knew that we wouldn't be able to get it in any of the stores around us because we've been looking. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so we said, let's grab our passports and let's just go in the morning to, to the U.S. It's a, it, it, I, I did this trip in, in one hour round trip, and I, I was very lucky that I was able to do that geographically from where, where I was at the time. I know that most people in Canada, um, it's not that easy. Certainly, like, you need a passport. You need to be able to, you need the means and the time to go there. Um, but I was shocked that when I got across the border, uh, 10 minutes, not even, 10 minutes from, from the Canadian border, there was no issue with the shelves at all in both grocery stores and pharmacies. I went to, to, to two different locations to check to be sure that this wasn't just, like, I got lucky somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I actually talked to a pharmacist there, and he told me that he had heard that Canada was having this problem, but he didn't understand why, because he kept getting supply and no problem. Yeah, so how do we, how do we reconcile that? How do we explain that? I, it's, I think that we need to demand answers, both from, yeah. from industry. Like, they've got to explain where is the bottleneck here? If it really is a global supply chain issue, if it is a shortage, why, why is it that we are, you know, hold, the ones holding the bag here and the Americans are, are able to, to get supply and we can't? Is it... But one of the things that we've heard is that it's the French-English label, that right. we can't just import it from the United States because those are just English labels and it's got to be bilingual. Well, can't we just import it and put a sticker on it? Like, I don't understand why this is so hard. Uh, yeah. It's been, I would, I would understand if this was a few weeks, maybe if this was two months, but it's been six months. At this point, there's just no more excuses. No, and I, yeah, I honestly don't think you know a parent who's who's got a you know a toddler with a fever is is not going to care too much, regardless of what your your first language is. Uh, you know the packaging. If if you need someone to translate it for you, I don't think people would care all that much if if it means being able to you know bring down that fever, help your kid deal with the you know the ear infection or the whatever it is, right? I mean that that yeah. seems like an odd thing to get hung up on, given the importance of this. Absolutely, and. While for older kids, and because they're the, the formulations, the chewables are on short supply too for older children, while you can safely give them um, you know, a smaller portion of adult Tylenol, it's, it, most parents are not comfortable crushing up and measuring out a certain amount for a very young child, especially a child under two. Um, you know, and some babies who aren't even eating food yet, and you're going to try to give them crushed up Tylenol and applesauce, I mean, it's just it's an untenable situation especially in the middle of the night, as so often happens when you really want to help your child out and, and there's nothing you can do. It's, it's infuriating. I recall the, um, and it wasn't that long ago, there was a whole big issue with the shortage of infant formula. And interesting, I think that that was a case where the United States was maybe worse off than, than Canada yeah. was, but it became like a major issue. And you had, the, you know, the president, political leaders, uh, you know, demanding answers, taking action. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, now that we're facing uh, something similar when it comes to these medications, 
We're, we're not seeing anything like that, are we, from, from leadership? There's been, there's been nothing and it, other than just, you know, a bunch of buck passing and some generic responses. Hopefully, um, the media attention that the, this has been receiving today and in the coming days, I hope that that will force politicians to pay some more attention. I know I've heard from tons of parents who um, have been saying, like, right on, this is a huge problem for, for them. And, and like people in the media too, you, you're all, you know, we can't forget that our journalists are parents too. And, yeah. and they know like when they see this, that absolutely this is an issue and they want answers to their questions as well. So we need to challenge our elected officials um, and we need to challenge industry to, to kind of come clean on this and tell us what's actually going on and what are you going to do to fix it? Because we're, we're coming into cold and flu season. It, it's already pretty bad. Uh, it may, you know, I hate, I hate to say it might get worse, but if it does, mm-hmm. man, we really need to get supply into this country. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you mentioned your piece. It's up at the line, theline.substack.com, getting a lot of reaction, understandably so. Melanie, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that's uh, columnist, uh, communicator Melanie uh, Parody, uh, president of Texture Communications. Uh, so, yeah, speak some firsthand experience, obviously. And sure, I mean, if you happen to be in a border town and you can zip across okay fair enough maybe that's not much different than zipping across town you just need your passports but that's not a realistic expectation you you don't say that to parents oh well hey just get your passport find the nearest border crossing and and, then no problem i mean if we're okay with canadians going across the border to buy this stuff then we should be okay with importing it back across the border if the americans have supply let's just order a whole bunch of it from them well, you know, it doesn't have the bilingual labeling on it. That's a big problem. Is it? Is that the biggest problem? That's what's frustrating. You know, if you speak English, you speak French, would you really care? You know, if we were short of uh, children's Tylenol and the government said, look, France has a whole bunch extra on hand. We're going to fly some in. There'll be a whole bunch here tomorrow. But it's from France, so the language on the box is in French. I think people out here would say, no, I don't want that. Of course not. Okay, I don't understand French. Is there someone who can translate this for me? Okay, great. I'll just use Google Translate, no problem. Simple enough, straightforward enough. I know how much to measure for my kid. I know what they take. If it's French on the box, good, get it here. As long as we have it. So that that seems like a weird excuse not to order directly from the United States, at least in the short term, if, if there's some issues. And like, you know, Melanie said, if it's a real problem, fine, put some stickers on the box. And until we can sort this out anyway. Because the alternative is just not having it or not having enough. That's that seems way, way worse to me, honestly. Because Canada is still a country that can dream big, think big, act big. It, it, it feels like it's been a long time since we've had any kind of a major national project. And maybe actually have to go back decades or generations to find examples of that. Now, obviously, in the short term, we face some economic challenges and navigating um, inflation, a possible recession coming out of the pandemic. But as we start to move forward, uh, you know, the case for thinking big uh, seems to grow stronger. It's something the Public Policy Forum has been focused on. There's a great op-ed in the National Post today, sort of exploring this in more detail. The idea of Canada undergoing a massive rebuild, uh, a rebuild in infrastructure, products, people, ideas, kind of a, a supply uh, rebuild, if you will. 
right? So there's an economic case for that, but there's something more to it, I think, in terms of uniting the country, in terms of, you know, changing the conversation about what Canada is or is capable of. So I want to kind of explore this in more detail. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, Sean Spears, co-author of this op-ed that I referenced. He's uh, with the Public Policy Forum, their Scotiabank Fellow in Strategic Competitiveness. Uh, Sean, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Robin. Uh, that was a great setup. I, I, I completely agree with your premise that there are economic and environmental reasons to kind of advance some of the ideas that we set out in our op-ed. But I, I think you're right. Fundamentally... It's about giving Canadians from different walks of life and different backgrounds or from different regions a sense that we have um, common, you know, a common enterprise and a, and a common project. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that's needed now um, more than ever. We'll talk about why now is the time, because obviously we're, we're navigating a lot of sort of short term and immediate challenges. And maybe people feel like we can't focus on this right now, or maybe that that's something we put off to another time, but why is now the time? Well, let me start with the the first part, which is the, the environmental and economic and kind of social reasons. And then maybe later we can talk about that kind of the deeper issue that I'm, I'm glad you raised. You know, we've had a kind of economic model really since the global financial crisis that has depended on uh, cheap, cheap money in effect um, to sustain yeah. Uh, economic demand. Um, you know, listeners will know interest rates have been at historic lows for you know more than a decade now. And there's a whole lot of, it's extraordinary when you think about it, Rob, look, there are businesses that have, um, business models that have come up over this period um, that probably wouldn't exist if, uh, if the cost of, of capital was higher. And I think we've all just gotten a bit um, complacent and frankly kind of addicted to this uh, economic model, which was sort of ephemeral. It, it, it couldn't possibly be sustained. And, and, you know, we're having this conversation, you know, literally minutes after we see the Federal Reserve raise interest rates uh, further in the United States to something approximating uh, historical norms for those listeners who, you know, had experienced beyond um, this kind of extraordinary and, and atypical decade. And I, I guess that's a very long way of saying, you know, we've been kind of juicing the demand side of the economy for the better part of the decade. And I think what we've discovered painfully in in recent months, if not longer, is that we've neglected the supply side of our economy. Um, and, you know, it seems to me and my co-author Ed Greenspan, um, you know, we need to kind of recommit ourselves to building and producing and making stuff uh, once again. It's interesting, and you, you, you know, the piece talks about the political atmosphere right now. There's, there's a lot of division, you know, I, I think in politics right now, uh, and the idea that that there's something big that can unite people seems far-fetched almost at some level. But you make the argument that you know, if, if we take this kind of an approach, right, there's there's elements that can appeal to different sides of, of the political spectrum. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that. You know, I would say a supply side agenda and by supply you know to try to make it as concrete as possible we're talking about energy for instance you know we want to have net zero by 2050 well that's that's uh that's only going to happen if we massively increase the supply of energy you know we need houses you know that's going to involve if we're going to lower housing prices particularly at some of our major centers and that's going to involve the construction of literally millions of new homes um 
you know, healthcare. You just go down the list where we are operating in a kind of supply constrained economy and uh, and society. And so, you know, begs the question: Well, how do you increase supply? And here, it seems to me, is where you can draw on some of the the good ideas on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, from from the right, I think that you know the argument would be one of the reasons we were living in this um, constrained supply in climate is because of what Pierre Polyev calls gatekeepers. We've, in effect, created a kind of regulatory morass that makes it hard to get projects approved and projects going. And so if you want more supply, uh, a necessary condition is going to involve removing the gatekeepers from the gates. Um, but that's probably a necessary but ins- insufficient uh, response. When it comes to, for instance, catalyzing um, new technologies in in the world of clean energy or whatever, there's probably going to be a, a more active role for government to de-risk some of those projects, uh, to, in effect, bring the private sector uh, to the table in a world in which the, the, the returns on investment may be unclear or may be a, a far time out. So I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, the way I've tried to come to think of this is, there's a catalytic role for government here, and that probably draws on kind of left-wing ideas, for lack of a better term. And then there's an unblocking role here, and, and that probably draws on, on conservative ideas. And so uh, we kind of hope that this notion of a supply rebuild um, may find resonance on um, both the left and the right. Well, when I when I think of these ideas, I mean, I, it calls to mind the LNG Canada project, for example, which is a forty billion dollar project, one of the if not the biggest energy projects ever in this country. Uh, you know, it took a long time to get to approval of the project. That was uh, four years ago. Now we're still probably a couple years away. But mind you, this was something that involved the BC government, the Alberta government, the federal government, uh, a lot of stakeholders. Uh, so on the one hand, it does represent, I think, what's what's possible. But on the other hand, it's, it illustrates just how complex, how long it takes uh, to, to get something like that approved, let alone let alone build. Yeah, exactly. And I would just say to um, to your progressive uh, listeners who, you know, on one hand, may have deep commitments to the goal of, of addressing climate change. On the other hand, have, you know, kind of predisposition to. Uh, more stringent regulatory processes. I, I just think increasingly those two positions are in tension. Um, you know, we need just a massive expansion of of clean energy sources if we have any chance at getting to net zero um, in you know less than 30 years. We're going to have to approve mining projects if we're going to deliver on the goal that the government has set of 100% of cars being sold as electric vehicles, you know, within an even shorter time horizon. Uh, All of the commitments that uh, progressives are committed to and, you know, really are uh, motivated by uh, are going to necessarily involve this this commitment, uh, matching commitment um, for expansion and and growth. And... um, and that project you mentioned is a really good example where there's a lot of environmental upside, um, but we almost put it at risk because of, um, you know, because of all of these regulatory hurdles that, that have built up over the years. 
So where, where does this start? I mean, you, you mentioned you know, in your piece that, you know, we're coming up with the 40th anniversary of, uh, you know, an important royal commission that became known as the uh, McDonald Commission. So do we need to go that route again? Is it going to have to involve a lot of talking, a lot of studying before we can get, you know, action? Or, or can we skip that part potentially? I think we have to skip that part. We, we've, we frankly don't have time. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, maybe I don't, at the risk of sounding naive, uh, in front of your listeners, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful. I do think that there is some growing con- convergence around these ideas. Um, you know, Christina Freeland has said some things that would suggest that she kind of instinctively understands that um, um, that this is the kind of route we need to go. Uh, tomorrow, or probably on Friday, we're going to have competing speeches, incidentally, uh, from Finance Minister Christina Freeland and Conservative leader uh Pierre Polyev on the economy uh-huh. in the aftermath of tomorrow's fall economic statement. I'm yeah. kind of hoping that uh, we start to see the early makings of, of, of uh, you know, if not a kind of uh, shared agreement on the specifics, then at least a kind of shared recognition um, that we need to move away from this artificial world of, of demand um, driven by, fueled by cheap cash and uh, a kind of redoubled commitment to build, produce, and and make stuff once again. And really interesting. Well, the report itself, the urgent case for a supply rebuild, it's up at ppform.ca. Sean, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Likewise, all the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Sean Spear, uh, who, as uh, mentioned, is with the Public Policy Forum. They're Scotiabank Fellow in Strategic Competitiveness. So they get an op-ed in the National Post today kind of laying out this idea. And uh, more details, as mentioned, that uh, report, it's up at uh, ppforum.ca, the urgent case for a supply rebuild. They say, look, if Canada is going to confront today's challenges, seize tomorrow's opportunities, we need to build things and nurture talent. So that's increasing the supply of everything from housing to hydrogen, quantum computing to the next mRNA, from long-term investments in minerals to long-term investments in human capitals. We need things, ideas, people, programmers, scientists, welders, teachers, nurses. And the list goes on. But maybe ultimately what we need uh, is leadership that's willing to think big. We feel it's important to assert what our exclusive powers are under the Constitution. So it's not about ignoring anything. It's about asserting and quantifying what that means to the province of Saskatchewan. Well, that's Saskatchewan's uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General talking about the Saskatchewan First Act, which has been tabled in the Saskatchewan legislature. As noted, Alberta's premier went out of the way to congratulate and applaud the Saskatchewan government. And it's quite likely that the Alberta Sovereignty Act, once it's tabled in the Alberta legislature, will mirror in a lot of ways what the Saskatchewan First Act is. But what is it exactly? You heard in that clip there, uh, the Attorney General talking about how it is uh, reasserting provincial jurisdiction, essentially reasserting and defending provincial jurisdiction, which is is reasonable for a province to do. But what does legislation accomplish? If provincial jurisdiction is enshrined in the Constitution, then that seems to be the more relevant place where it's all written down. So is a lot of this for show, or does this actually 
measurably change anything. I know certainly for the Saskatchewan government, it's a nice uh, change of topic after several days of controversy regarding uh, Colin Thatcher's invitation to the throne speech. But uh, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this particular bill, what the Saskatchewan government envisions it will do, and maybe what lessons there are here for Alberta. Uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Murray Mandrick, political columnist for the Regina Leader Post. Uh, much more at leaderpost.com. Uh, Murray, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So, like I say, I think it's interesting from an Alberta perspective because I suspect, you know, the provinces are kind of mirroring each other on, on this in a lot of ways. But let me get your thoughts or at least your understanding of what it is the Saskatchewan First Act is intended to do. Well, it's interesting. There's obviously a political element to it. If you read the language in the act, it talks about the intrusion caused by economic harm and uncertainty uh, to Saskatchewan residents and enterprises caused directly by the federal government intrusion, which sounds pretty political, particularly for a bill, as those of us who've had to deal with a lot of legislation in our life, it's not the kind of language you normally see in a bill. So that's kind of a key that it's pretty political. I just stepped out of question period in Saskatchewan, and uh, uh, it was mentioned four times in terms of Doug Meets and uh, Justin in terms of responses by governments to NDP opposition questions. And a lot of those were in relation to things that touched on uh, the Saskatchewan First Act, the bill. So one can kind of sense the politics. But all that said, it does do as Minister Eyre, our Justice Minister Bronwyn Eyre suggested, which is in essence to reaffirm our position, our uh, rights within the framework of the Constitution as a province to control natural resources. The reason mm-hmm. for doing this, uh, says the Minister and others, is that in next time that we get into either a jurisdictional squabble, a fight, or maybe advancing it to a court level, it clarifies the reality that, that we do suffer economic harm by some federal policies, namely environmental policies. So within that, there is legitimate policy issue that's kind of mixed in with the politics. And as my dad used to say, it's kind of like picking the fly poop out of the pepper sometimes in terms of finding out sure. which is politics and which is not. Right. There, there's an aspect to all of this where uh, you know, Saskatchewan would kind of like Quebec is attempting to do to unilaterally amend uh, the Constitution Act, which seems, from what I've read, somewhat at least constitutionally problematic. What, what can you tell us about that aspect? Well, once again, I'm not a constitutional expert, but I can't sure. find one that tells me that that is a what Quebec actually did and be what Saskatchewan can do in this legislation or any other. The whole notion right. that a province can can unilaterally amend the Canadian Constitution when we actually have a Canadian uh, a formula of seven provinces representing 50% of the population to amend the Constitution kind of tells you maybe where this act is going. You know, governments and politicians say a lot in either legislation and or outside legislation about what bills do. I honestly don't think this is what, what this bill does. And from what I from from the constitutional experts I've been able to glean, although no one seems to have a, a, a clear handle on this, is that this isn't even really what Quebec does. However, right. what it does do is something legitimate, and this is what um, our, our constitutional lawyers in Saskatchewan told us yesterday. It does clarify and research 
Saskatchewan's ability to basically say we control our own natural resources and sometimes federal policies, including the carbon tax, do uh, affect and uh, have some outcome in terms of of our ability to do things. And that's a big problem here in Saskatchewan, as you know, Rob, as it it is in Alberta. We're a coal-burning province to get electricity right now, and we have to face out of coal by 2030. Well, that's a legitimate problem in Saskatchewan, not because necessarily that they don't want to, but they don't want to suffer the economic harm. And quite frankly, it might be uh, unfeasible and unreasonable to do it in that short time frame. So there, there is sort of some logic to the argument that we're hearing right now in this bill, and certainly from the Saskatchewan government overall about how difficult some of these things are. That said, there's also some problems in terms of the argument. We're, uh, we're hearing on the floor of the legislature in Saskatchewan, in other words, it's, it's, it's so tainted with the political process um, that, uh, that uh, uh, it's really hard to separate what's politics and whatnot. I will say it doesn't go as far as, as what I, I hear is being threatened in Alberta under the Economic Sovereignty Act, but you know, I'm obviously no expert on, on, on the details of the Economic Sovereignty Act in Alberta. Yeah, it's hard to know what that's going to look like in the end, uh, just because you know the, the arguments seem to have shifted. I, I would imagine we're going to end up with something pretty similar to this. Um, it that was makes intru- sense to me, yeah. 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 Um, it was interesting. We, you know, the premier, uh, Scott Moe, said, you know, that the goal here is kind of a better relationship. We want an honorable partnership with the federal government. I think the mood is similar in the two provinces and in, in sort of feeling ignored or disrespected. It, it, does that seem to be a lot of the impetus for for what led to this legislation? Well, that's a good thing to say when they're actually presenting the bill and they're actually trying to to make a legitimate argument for uh, for changes, and there is a legitimate argument uh, uh, for making the changes. And it's it's hard, as you know, in being in Alberta, not to sense sometimes that we are screwed around by Ottawa because of federal policies and everything else. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That they they don't take into account little things. In Saskatchewan, it might be something as little as paying. Uh, the carbon tax on grain drying, on on, uh, on natural gas and other things that are just a yeah. bloody irritant and everything else. But it's also a lot of bigger things. That said, Scott Moe is probably not in a great position to basically say this is just an honourable dialogue we're trying to have with o- Ottawa. He has spent his whole summer just looking for fights with, o- with Ottawa. We all know that. It was everything this summer from getting angry at... Uh, federal health inspectors uh, taking right. water samples out of ditches because that was trespassing to the whole issue related to federal labeling on hamburger and other meats to to any num- any number of things that they go out and write a letter to Ottawa once a week in Saskatchewan seemingly looking for a fight that could be solved without sort of a public display of, of, of anger towards Ottawa. But of course this government knows that that sells and moreover, they tried to sell it themselves in terms of uh, their political narrative that all your problems uh, are Justin and and uh, and, and uh, Jack Meat, as they pronounce it. And that was mentioned four times in the assembly. So, in some ways, I guess one can argue is if you're Scott Moe that you're looking for an honourable way out dialogue. But you kind of can't have it both ways because so much of it in yeah. Saskatchewan has been based on the political fight that generally speaking hasn't been particularly productive except politically because the Saskatchewan party is an incredibly uh, popular 
party in a very rural-based province and has a strong uh, rural-based stro- uh, foothold of this mm-hmm. province, and that's why they keep winning elections and because they keep uh, uh, hearing about how bad the federal government is, and they kind of eat it up. And, you know, sometimes for good reason, mostly for good reason, but sometimes for not. Interesting points. Uh, much more as I mentioned, leaderpost.com. Murray, appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for the overview. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Cheers. Uh, that's Murray Mandrick, political columnist for the Regina Leader Post and the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. Uh, so kind of an overview of the Saskatchewan First Act, you know, the impetus for it, what the Saskatchewan government thinks it's going to do. I'm not sure it's going to do a whole lot, just like I don't know that whatever kind of Alberta Sovereignty Act we end up with is going to end up doing a whole lot. It seems like the government, or at least the premier, is kind of backed away from uh, the version of the act that was originally written that she embraced that we were just going to sow constitutional chaos, we were going to ignore federal law, we are going to ignore federal jurisdiction, we are going to ignore the courts. I think we've moved away from that. What are we left with? And, and again, what do we expect it to achieve? If we want to defend our jurisdiction, well, we can do that. Like We don't need a law. A law doesn't change the Constitution. And again, the point here is that the Constitution spells all of this out. Now, this is our jurisdiction. Mind you, at the same time, we need federal jurisdiction. There's no LNG Canada project without federal jurisdiction. There's no Trans Mountain Pipeline without federal jurisdiction. There's no pipelines to the U.S. without federal jurisdiction. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.